Thank you, choir, for that amazing special this morning. I got to say, the choir game has been strong the last couple of weeks, knocking it out of the park. I don't know if that's uh, empowering or intimidating to have to come up after that and preach God's Word, but either way, the Spirit is sufficient. If you've got a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn to the book of Philippians. Many of you know we've been traveling through the book of Philippians for several weeks now, so you probably already got a bookmark there. Uh, But Philippians chapter 1, we're going to look at this text in just a second. It is an honor today to have two men in this place who have been extremely influential in my life. One of them has known me all of my life. The other one has known me ever since I married his daughter. And So I have my dad, my stepmom, Dennis and Sophie Haynes that are here with me today. Dad, there's right there. Uh, I tried to warn some of you that my dad was coming in town. Uh, he's, he's larger than life, and so uh, that's legendary Blue Haynes, and if you haven't heard about him, you will before, before it's all said and done, I'm sure. Uh, and then, what a joy to have back uh, my mother and father-in-law, Scotty and Kathy Hogan, back from Israel. Several of you asked me, hey, your father and mother-in-law joined the church, and two weeks later, they haven't been back. <laughs> They've been in Israel serving the Lord at the garden tomb, and we were excited to be able to welcome them back this last week. And so what a joy to have all of that family and my sister-in-law, Sarah, who's with us. Don't want to leave Sarah out today, who's also visiting with us today. She's not here for me. She's here because she needs to see mom and daddy uh, after being dismissed from, away from them for two months. So uh, before we get to God's Word this morning, I do want to draw your attention to one thing that's in your worship guide that's very important this afternoon. We are having a baby shower for the ministry of Save-A-Life. One of the ministries that we partner with here locally is the Save-A-Life ministry. I don't know of any ministry in our local community that is probably more important or more strategic in the gospel than the ministry of Save-A-Life. And uh, I'm very thankful for Stephen and Anna McCollum who've taken this project on to, uh, to host a baby shower this afternoon from 2 to 4 in the parlor for that. There are some items there, so if you haven't had an opportunity to go by and pick some of those up, maybe this afternoon on your way out from lunch, you can swing by and pick up some items and drop them off in the parlor. Tonight, uh, we will have the honor of having the director of Save a Life, who will be visiting with us for a few minutes, and we're going to give her an opportunity to give us an update on the ministry of Save a Life, and and then we're going to pray over these gifts that you bring. We're going to pray over them for the ladies and the children that receive them, Uh, and also pray over the ministry of Save-A-Life. So I invite you to come back tonight for that as we pray over that ministry and look at the the subject of the gospel and the sanctity of life. And so we'll be talking about that this evening. I heard there's a football game going on, and some of you may be uh, watching that. And if you're not, we certainly invite you to come and be a part of that tonight. We'll get you out of here in time to watch the Patriots win anyway. So, And I'm a... I'm a Patriots fan, so it's perfectly fine with me if they do. Today we're going to be continuing through our series in Philippians called The Joy of the Christ-Centered Life. And as we read through this letter from the Apostle Paul to his good friends and brothers and sisters in Christ in Philippi, what we discover is a letter that is saturated all about seeking a life of joy that is grounded in Jesus Christ and the gospel. Those three themes, joy, Christ, and the gospel, are the central themes of the book of Philippians. So far, we've seen several 
things in this passage. In verses 3 through 8, Paul expresses his deep gratitude and joy for the Philippians because he says they are not only partakers of grace, but they are also partners with him in the gospel. In verses 9 through 11, he prays specifically for them, and he prays that they would have an abounding love, a growing love in Christ that would enable them to know what is right, pursue what is best, and to bear the fruit of the gospel. Last week we looked at verses 12 through the first part of verse 18 in which Paul begins to give them an update on his imprisonment in Rome and declares that actually his chains that he wears have become tools through which he can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul takes great joy in the fact that Jesus Christ is being proclaimed no matter what and that no matter what, the gospel comes first. And so if God needs to use a prison cell and some chains in order to advance the gospel, that's perfectly fine with Paul. Today we're going to look at the second part of that update in verses 18 through 26. And in this passage, Paul continues to talk about his potential future as he is awaiting trial in Rome, and yet he isn't concerned. I think for many of us, if we had been unjustly accused and spent four or five years in a, in a dark prison cell simply for preaching Christ and telling others how they can find salvation in Jesus Christ, I would think we would begin to be concerned. I would think we would be discouraged. But you don't see that in Paul. Instead, you see that Paul is confident that whatever the outcome of his imprisonment, he will win. He is displaying the perfect example of a win-win attitude which is grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so before we get to this passage today, I want to ask you to fill in the blank. Many of you might remember having to go to school and have a pop quiz, and so we're going to give you a pop quiz this morning. And the pop quiz is simply this. Fill in these blanks. For me, living is blank and dying is blank. For me, living is what? What would you define as living? Now, you know, some of you are probably going to get Sunday school answers going here. You already kind of know what Paul's going to say. Or, or maybe you, uh, you want to kind of be a little spiritual. Be honest for a second. If you're just having conversation with a coworker, and y'all are talking about life and, and you say, you know what, for me, life is really about this. How would you fill that in? It's a statement that everyone must fill in personally at some point in time because each and every one of us have some standard by which we evaluate what life is all about. And the reality is, is that from the moment we wake up until the moment we go to bed at night, we spend every waking moment of the day pursuing that which we would fill in the blank, living is this. We spend most of our energy most of our, our resources pursuing what we really define to be living. And whatever you choose to fill in that blank to define what living is, then it is usually the lack of that thing that is the opposite of that thing which you would consider to be dying. Whatever you define as living will determine not only what you define as dying, but it will also determine the trajectory your life will pursue. For instance, some would say that living is being out in the woods on the hunt for that perfect 10 or 12 point buck. Or being out on a clear lake and snagging that trophy bass. Living is all about 
being in that hunt or, or catching that fish. And if that's what you define as living, if that's what living is for you, then dying would be stuck in a traffic jam on the way to an eight-hour workday. For some, living might be having enough money to be comfortably enjoying travel and life in your retirement years. Life is to be financially comfortable. And if that's the case, then dying is being broke and having more month at the end of the money. For some, they would say, living for me is sitting on a white sand beach in the Caribbean. Can I get a witness? If that's the case, then dying for you would probably be stuck in the house while the temperature is 20 below zero. Don and Kathy, can I get a witness? Up in Michigan last week? Yeah. For some, living might be having the perfect dress size and a beauty that everyone else craves. And dying would be losing that beauty and growing old. You see, our internal compasses in our hearts are internally wired to have a tendency to fill in that blank, living is this, usually with cheap substitutes for Christ. And so for many of us, when we're not in our spiritual moments, when we're not in church where we're expected to play religious, for most of us, we would say living is things such as money, sex, power, beauty, entertainment, fame, admiration, or security. Those are the things that we really want in life. And when we do, we not only find ourselves pursuing the wrong things, but also we end up defining failure by the wrong measurements. If you fill in the first blank wrong, then you're going to pursue not only the wrong thing, but you're going to end up defining dying the wrong way. And so what Paul helps us to see here today in this passage is to evaluate what will we really spend our time and energy living for and what do we have in our life that is worth dying for. With that in mind, let's read Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. We'll go back and kind of look at where he started, ended last week when he says, "...only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I will rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice." For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. What is it that gives a guy like Paul the kind of confidence and joy to say, literally, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? In 1955, five young men with a passion to take the name of Jesus to places 
where it had never been heard, loaded up their wives and their families, and moved from the United States and the comfort of the United States to the jungles of Ecuador. These five young men were known as Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Yoderin, Ed McCulley, and Pete Fleming. And they had developed a passion through the study of God's Word and through praying to the Holy Spirit that the Aka tribe of Indians in Ecuador deserved to hear about Jesus. Every attempt to reach this remote, brutal jungle tribe had been met with violent resistance. Yet, these five men pressed on, initially flying overhead in their plane and dropping presents out of it for the Aukas, and then eventually landing on the shores of the riverbank and setting up a camp nearby where they would attempt to engage in conversations or meeting them. Initially, things seemed to be going well. However, on January 8, 1956, these five men were brutally speared by the very same people that they had come to tell about Jesus. And all five of them died. At the time, that story made Time magazine and many people wondered not only what would cause people to leave the United States to go to such a brutal group of people to try to engage them, but, but why would anybody ever go back and try to tell them about Jesus? But one of the wives of one of the men did, and eventually some of those people became believers until eventually the whole tribe became Christians. What could possibly motivate that kind of courage that would brave almost certain attack just to tell a small, remote tribe of savages about the love of God? Isn't it foolish to put yourselves and possibly your family in harm's way for a group of people who don't want you there and don't want to hear what you have to say? I've heard that expressed before. I've heard that expressed before when I talk to people about how God has called me in this season of my life to engage in ministry in Uganda. And I hear people say, why, why go to Uganda? There's plenty of people here that need to hear about Jesus, to which usually my reply is, yeah, are you telling them about them? <laughs> Because if you're not telling people about Jesus here, don't criticize somebody who feels called to go over there. After their death, these immortal words were eventually found in Jim Elliott's journal, which have served as a catalyst for literally hundreds of thousands of people who have given their lives to the mission field. When Jim Elliott wrote, He is no fool who gives, what he, gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot understood what Paul did. For Jim Elliot to live was Jesus Christ and to die was gain. And so what I want us to see is how do we find a joy in Christ that is so deep and abiding that you and I could not just mouth these words because we're Christians and in the Bible, but you and I can literally say, for me, living is Jesus Christ and dying is even better. And so today's takeaway is simply this, the Christian's joy in life should be grounded in the conviction that all of living and all of dying is for the glory of Jesus Christ alone. If you really want to experience the joy of the Christ-centered life, then it's going to come from the firmly established conviction that everything about living and subsequently everything about dying is for the glory of Jesus Christ alone. 
I want to share with you four Christ-centered convictions that Paul expresses in this text today. The first of those we've already focused on in verse 21, and that is simply this, that as followers of Jesus Christ, our defining attitude should be to live for Christ. Our defining attitude should be to live for Christ. No other phrase sums up the theme of the joy of the Christ-centered life more than verse 21 where Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This phrase has echoed throughout eternity. And this phrase has encouraged and inspired thousands of people to discover the real meaning and purpose for which they exist. It's one of the most familiar passages of Scripture in the Bible. But for Paul, this wasn't just a catchphrase to be put on a t-shirt or to be stuck on the wall of your office. For Paul, this was the defining attitude of his life. You see, before Paul became a believer, Paul had spent a lifetime seeking to live for the law and the traditions of the Jewish law. In a couple of chapters in Philippians chapter 3, we are going to read some of Paul's impressive religious resume. But on that day when Saul of Tarsus encountered Jesus Christ on the Damascus road, in that moment, Saul's physical eyes may have been blinded by the glory of Christ, but his spiritual eyes had never seen life clearer. And what happened to Saul on the road that day was simple. The spiritual man once born Saul died and a new man in Jesus Christ was raised that day. This is what Paul means in Galatians chapter 2 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's what's true of all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. The day that you and I entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the day that you and I reached the end of ourselves and realized that there was nothing that we could do in our own flesh and blood to earn the favor of God and that we were hopelessly, desperately bound for an eternity apart from Him. And when we fell on our knees in repentance and confession and gave our lives to Jesus Christ, that day you died. And Jesus Christ came to live in you. And that's why Paul says, The life I now live in the faith, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what happens when the gospel of Jesus Christ collides with a sinful heart that is destined to spend eternity in hell apart from him. When you and I come to the point of truly understanding our desperate condition, that in our own humanity we are broken, rebellious sinners who have exchanged the glory of God to pursue the fleeting and unfulfilling idols of this world, that we are men and women who deservedly stand under the righteous condemnation of God because of our sinful choices. When that desperation collides with the glory of a Savior who did not leave us condemned to die but came to our world, took on our flesh, face the same temptations that you and I face, yet without sin, who perfectly obeyed every righteous demand of God and then willingly went to the cross to give his life to die to pay for the penalty of your sins. When that level of brokenness and desperation collides with the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, we can never go back to living life for ourselves and on our own terms. Never. And I would submit to say that if you became a Christian and you walked an aisle and you prayed a prayer and you got baptized and you joined the church 
But you never experienced that level of desperation colliding with that level of grace and mercy. And you were able to go back and live life on your own terms, setting the course of your own life. I would dare say you probably never really understood the gospel. Because once you understand the gospel and once you understand what Jesus Christ has done for you, your defining attitude can no longer be to live for the glory of you. And so first of all, we see the Christ-centered conviction that if we are followers of Jesus, our defining attitude is to live for Christ. But secondly, because our defining attitude is to live for Him, then our consuming ambition is to bring honor to Christ. Our consuming ambition in life is to bring honor to Him. In verse 20, Paul expresses it this way when he says, It is my eager expectation and hope. So here he is in prison, and he's giving them an update. And he says, I've been in prison, and I really don't know what awaits me. I'm facing trial. I don't know when it's going to be. I might die. I might be released. It is my eager expectation and hope. Most of us would finish that sentence to say, it's my eager expectation and hope that I get out of here. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will be found innocent. But Paul said, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That is the win-win attitude. Either way, whether I live, whether I die, I want Christ to be honored. And so as Christ followers, because we have defined our central attitude to live for Him, our greatest ambition must then be to live in such a way as to bring honor to Him. In verse 19, Paul knows that the Philippians are praying for him in prison and they, he knows that they are praying specifically that God would allow him to be released. That's what we would be doing if we were the Philippians. If we had a brother or sister in Christ that we knew who was in jail for preaching the gospel, we would be praying, God, release him. God, please vindicate him. Allow him to continue on in ministry. That's what we would be praying. And Paul acknowledges those prayers in verse 19. He says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He, he knows that he's going to be delivered. Now, here's the tension. Most of us read that word deliverance, and we believe that Paul is expressing deliverance from physical imprisonment. The word used here could mean that, but it is also the same word used for salvation. And so what Paul is saying is, whatever happens will work out for his salvation, either through physical release from prison or spiritual release from this sinful world. Either way, Paul says, I'm going to be saved in this situation. These chains do not bound me from telling others about Christ, and I know that whether I walk out of this prison a free man or whether I die with my head on the chopping block one way or the other, I'm going to be saved. Paul is expressing this key thought that all of life is living for Christ and there is nothing in our life that isn't to be done to bring honor to Him. And if all of our life is Christ, then our greatest aim as Christ followers would be to devote ourselves fully to those things that bring Christ honor. 
What it means is that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Today, when you go about the course of your day, you want to ask yourself, what could I do today that would honor Jesus Christ so that others could see Him and know Him better? It means that when you go to work tomorrow, even if you work in a job that you absolutely detest, you go to work and you say, what can I do today that would bring honor to Him? This is what Paul was expressing when he wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, what? Do it all to the glory of God. One of my favorite Christian artists and an early influence on me as a young Christian was an artist by the name of Rich Mullins. Rich Mullins, I saw in concert several times and I always enjoyed not only his music, I enjoyed the way that he wrote songs and the things that he sang about. And I read after his death one time, I read that he once said that he wanted to live his life as an arrow pointing people to Jesus. That his greatest aim in life was not to be a successful singer and songwriter, but to live his life in such a way that he was nothing more than an arrow through which he could point others to Jesus. Some people know Rich Mullins was one of the most successful songwriters in the Christian music industry. And yet he took all the money that he received and put it in a, in a, in a trust that was overseen by some men in his ministry. He drew a very, very small salary from that and gave most of the money that he made from singing and songwriting away to other people. Not only that, he grew so tired of the Christian music industry as a whole that he decided to move from Nashville and went to live the last years of his life on an Indian reservation in New Mexico simply to demonstrate the gospel to Native Americans who did not know about Jesus. It's a reminder to us that when your life is defined by Jesus Christ, then your central desire and ambition in life is to do those things which bring Him honor and which live, allow you to live as a believer, as an arrow pointing other people to Him. All of us live our lives with great ambition. And many of us want to accomplish great things in life. We want to be part of epic movements. We want to live our lives for the pursuit of some kind of glory. But what would it mean for you today to say that you want to live your life for the honor of Jesus Christ alone? Our third Christ-centered conviction that we see in this text is simply this, that our ultimate aspiration then is to be with Christ. If our defining attitude is to, to live for Christ and our consuming ambition is to honor Christ, then ultimately our ultimate aspiration is that we want to be with Christ. Paul says in verses 22 and 23, If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Have you ever come to the point in your life where you can say that? Have you come to the point in your life where right now you said, you know what, all things given, it's perfectly fine with me if Jesus decides today to take me home because that's a whole lot better than living in this world. For some of you, you've gotten to that point, but for many of us, we say, I don't know if I'm quite ready to do that yet. Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. I, I want to be with Him. 
And as we read his letter, we see this tension that Paul feels where even though both situations, living and continuing in ministry or dying and going to be with Jesus, both of them were wins, he really doesn't know which one he desires more. He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Yet he would love to keep on sharing the gospel and seeing people come to faith in Jesus as well. By this time in his life, Paul has spent many years and paid a high price for being obedient to Jesus. He's been in multiple prison cells, stoned by angry mobs, beaten with rods, shipwrecked at sea. And I can understand if I was Paul, by this point in life, I might say, you know what, I'm ready to go home to. And yet while Paul would love to see many, many more people come to know Christ and more disciples grown in the gospel, his deepest desire is to be with Christ and to hear from his master that commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You see, Paul knew something inherently that I believe that many of us as Christ followers have a tendency to forget. You see, one of the things that I've learned in life is the longer you're a Christian, the more you're susceptible to gospel amnesia. The more you're susceptible to knowing certain things internally but forgetting about them as reigning realities in your life. But Paul didn't have gospel amnesia and he knew inherently this truth. This world has nothing to offer us that compares to eternity with Christ. There is nothing that this world can offer us that can compare to spending eternity with Jesus. And as Christ followers, this world is not our home and it is not our final destination. The overarching reality of life is that we are, is that we are people who live forever somewhere, but nobody will live forever here. And so when you have nothing of eternal value to keep you here, why would you not aspire to live in a perfect heavenly home with Jesus? I see these words as Paul is, is reading through this tension where basically what Paul is saying to the Philippians is this, this present prison one way or another is not my final destination. I'm here for a little while, but one way or another, I'm not going to stay here. And isn't it freeing that whatever trial you're in, whatever circumstance you're in, whatever difficulty you're in, whatever you may be facing in life, if you are a follower of Jesus, you can say with confidence, I know one thing, this prison... This is not my final destination. Again, my favorite singer, Rich Mullins, penned these words to this song years ago. It's one of my favorites and one of, one of the lesser known songs that he did. He said this, everybody, each and all, we're going to die eventually. It's no more or less our faults than it is our destiny. So now, Lord, I come to you asking only for your grace. You know what I've put myself through and all those empty dreams I chased. And when my body lies in the ruins of the lies that nearly ruined me, will you pick up the pieces that were pure and true and breathe life into them and set them free? And when you start this world over again from scratch... Will you make me anew out of the stuff that lasts, stuff that's purer than gold and clearer than glass could ever be? And Jesus, could I be with you? As followers of Jesus, our ultimate desire should always be, no matter what, to be with Christ, whether here in the prison cells that we may find ourselves in 
or in glory with him. Which brings us to the fourth and final Christ-centered conviction, which is simply this. If our central attitude is to live for Christ and our great ambition is to honor Him and our ultimate aspiration is to be with Him, then while we are here, our present aim is to finish the mission of Christ. Our present aim here is to finish the mission of Christ. Verse 25, Paul says, basically, after wrestling with all of this, he says, as I've prayed to the Holy Spirit, I've gotten a pretty good indication that I'm going to be released and I'm going to stay here. He says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. It wasn't for Paul's progress. Paul says, God's going to keep me here for your progress, for your joy, so that in my remaining you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. You see, when your ultimate aspiration is to be with Christ in your eternal home, then your present aim should be to finish the mission of Christ in your earthly lives. And this is what Paul expressed. You see, one of the things that I think is interesting is, and I heard David Platt mention this for the first time several years ago, many of us spend a lot of time talking about the end times and looking at the signs and trying to discern, are we really close to the return of Jesus? Are we living in those last moments where Jesus could literally return at any moment? Have the signs all been lining up in such a way that Christ could come back today? And I believe they are. But there's one sign that Jesus made abundantly clear, and that is He said, this gospel will be preached to the whole world, and then the end will come. Which means that if Revelation is true and that at the throne room of the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be people from every tribe, nation, and tongue gathered around the throne. And if there are presently 4,000 unengaged, unreached people groups that haven't yet heard the name of Christ so that no one in that people group has punched their ticket to heaven, then the greatest thing that you and I can do to bring about the return of Jesus Christ is to tell others about Him. That's the greatest thing that you and I do, to remember that God has put us on a mission to make disciples, and that the mission of Christ is the purpose of your life. It is the purpose of your life around which everything else revolves. It is the purpose of your life around which your job, your family, your friendships, and your future plans and dreams revolve. The mission of Christ is to make disciples and to live for Him, to continually to testify to the goodness and grace of Christ and to bring the hope of Jesus Christ to a lost and broken world. People in our world are starving spiritually for real hope and real peace. And we in this room have the eternal hope and the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. The mission of Christ defines why you live in the neighborhood that you do. You don't just live in the neighborhood that you do because you saw this house and you were really drawn to it. You live in the neighborhood you do because the Holy Spirit has sovereignly placed you in that neighborhood with those neighbors. The mission of Christ defines why you have the job you do. You don't just have the job you do because of your great intellect and you earned a degree from college and you worked your way up a corporate ladder. You have the job you do because Jesus Christ has placed you in that job. And our lives are to be lived for the missional purpose of communicating and demonstrating the gospel in every arena in which we live. And if we have a personal relationship with Christ, 
and we have the Holy Spirit of Christ inside of us, then as followers of Him, when we bring the gospel to bear in every place we go, and wherever the gospel goes, spiritual flourishing ensues as a result. So what would it mean for you to say to live as Christ and to die as gain? What would it mean in your life for you to come to the point where you, like Paul, could say, you know what, for me right now, I have determined that for me to live as Christ, and it means that my, my ultimate attitude is to, is, to, is to live for Him, I want to honor Him, I want to be with Him, and ultimately I want to finish the mission that He has called me to. What would it mean to have that kind of all-in attitude that says my life is completely sold out to Jesus Christ and His mission until the point that my life is exhausted and then I will gain Christ completely and eternally? What does that mean for you? George Whitfield was one of the most influential evangelists of the First Great Awakening, one of the most powerful preachers that the church has ever known. And as he began to preach, and literally hundreds of thousands of people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ, he was part of the burgeoning Methodist movement. And as the Methodist movement was growing and thousands were coming to Christ, a division began in the Methodist movement between some of the friends of George Whitfield and some of the friends of John Wesley. And so in that moment, Whitfield made the decision to hand over the reins of the movement to his friend, John Wesley. He decided that it would be better for John to lead the Methodist movement and for Whitfield to step aside and to no longer be the leader of it. When he did, some of his followers began to protest. And some of them warned him that his name would be forgotten in history because he had given over the Methodist movement to John Wesley. Whitfield replied this way, My name? Let the name of Whitfield perish if only the name of Christ be glorified. Let the name of Whitfield perish if only Jesus Christ could be glorified. Well, Whitfield's name didn't perish and his passionate influence for Christ was not forgotten. You know, I thought about this too. When I, when I think about finishing the mission of Christ, I can't help but think about my friends Royce and Sandra Watkins. Royce and Sandra are friends and fellow board members on the board of Four Corners Ministries where I serve. And right now they are presently serving in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Royce was a very successful businessman who built a very successful pharmaceutical company in the Birmingham area and enjoyed the financial fruits of his labor. And yet when he entered into that season of life where it was time for him to begin retirement, he and Sandra made the determination that they would not spend their retirement simply playing golf and traveling to scenic destinations. And so he and his wife, when they retired, moved to Uganda and lived about six months out of the year every year in Uganda for three years among the Acholi people. They did that for three years until we hired a new president and then when we hired a new president of our organization, Royce and Sandra began to pray and God directed them to the IMB and the, the, cities and the Global Cities Initiative of the IMB and for the last 16 months they have been living in Kuala Lumpur among the Malaysians where very few people have heard the name of Jesus. Because Royce and Sandra understand that the central aim of their life is to finish the mission of Christ and that there is no age limit on that. You see, when our defining attitude is to live for Christ and to die as gain, 
that not only is our consuming ambition to honor Him and our ultimate aim to be with Him, but the central purpose of our lives is to finish the, the mission that He has to make disciples of all nations. So, fill in the blank. For me, living is blank and dying is blank. One of the things that I learned when I was about 20 years old was that you will never truly understand that living is Christ as long as your primary purpose in life is to live for yourself. And as long as you sit on the throne room of your heart, you will never bow the knee to King Jesus. You see, there's only room for one sovereign king in your life. And you must make the determination, is it going to be Jesus or is it going to be you? And if you decide that the sovereign king of your life is going to be King Jesus, then eventually to live as Christ and to die as gay. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for a second? We're going to enter into a time of prayer and invitation. We want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you can't say with firm confidence right now to live as Christ and to die as gain, then it might be because the greatest need of your heart is to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Perhaps you've never actually truly entered into a relationship with Him. You've never trusted all that you are for all that He is. And so today, your great need is to, is to put up the white flag of surrender, to lay down your arms and to bow your knee to King Jesus and simply say, King Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. What He will do with you after that, I cannot tell. But I can tell you this, it'll be far better than anything you're planning on. So maybe today you need to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Just a moment as we sing, if you need to get saved, if you need to give your heart to Christ, we want to invite you to come and say, Pastor Matt, I just need to get my life right with Him. I need to be saved. Maybe today you're not ready to walk an aisle in front of a bunch of people, but maybe you need to talk to somebody and we have people that can talk to you afterwards. You can see me or David or Ken. And we'll be glad to tell you how you can know Jesus today. Maybe you need to come for some other reason. Maybe you need to come today because you just allowed some, some stuff in your life to take precedence over Jesus as a follower of Him. And maybe today you just need to come and lay all that stuff down and say, Jesus, I want to be fully surrendered to You. Whatever it is that God's calling you to do, be obedient to Him today. Jesus, we come to You right now. And I ask You to do something that only You can do. Only You can bring life from death. Only You can breathe spiritual life into our hearts. So I pray, Father, if there's anyone in the sound of my voice who does not know you as Lord and Savior today, that you would begin to breathe the life of Christ into them, that you would call them to yourself, and that you would give them the courage and the boldness to admit their spiritual need today. Whatever it is today, Father, help us to leave this place as followers of Jesus who say, for me to live is you, Jesus, and to die is even better. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Sing this with us and respond as the Lord leads you.